Welcome to another live episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. I had a pretty busy day today. Earlier today, I dropped my two younger kids off at summer camp where they're going to be for the next month. And then I just got back from a birthday dinner with my wife. I had my older son uh, that was with me as well as uh, one of my wife's friends. And then tomorrow we are flying to Germany where I'm going to be talking at yet another uh, blockchain crypto conference in Hamburg and then I'm going to be in Europe until the kids are finished with camp on vacation for about a month but I'm going to be traveling with this laptop and I'll be doing my podcasts along the way. Maybe I'll see some of you at this uh, uh, crypto conference in, in Hamburg. I want to spend most of today's podcast though talking about the testimony on Capitol Hill earlier this week, I think it was on Wednesday and Thursday, where Jerome Powell did his biannual uh, trip to Capitol Hill, where he talks to the Senate and he talks to the House of Representatives, supposedly to kind of enlighten everybody about monetary policy and what's going on. But it really is a bunch of political grandstanding where the Democrats talk about how great everything is and claim that Biden is the reason that everything is so great. And of course, the Republicans uh, are very critical and are blaming uh, everything on Biden. But then you have uh, Powell who uh, you know, tries to not offend anybody, not take any stances. And, and, and it, the whole thing is just a charade. And I'm going to go over the lowlights just looking through my my Twitter account, because this is going to remind me, because I was like watching this and I just keep tweeting, which is why everybody should follow me on Twitter. Probably most of the people who listen to my podcasts are following me on Twitter because I have almost 960,000 um, people who who follow me. And these are real followers. You know, I, you know, I, I was looking at the New York Times the other day. And I'll, I'll, actually, I'm going to get to that later. But, you know, I noticed they had like 55 million followers you know, which is 55 times the number of followers I have. But if you look at the engagement on their tweets, nobody likes them, nobody retweets them. I mean, they have about one-tenth the engagement that I have as far as likes and comments and retweets. But they have 55 million fake followers, which is, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, the same uh, type of news that they report. They have fake news, and so they have fake uh, uh, Twitter followers. But mine are very re real. And they, they engage, although well, I have a number of bots too that, that try to spam my, uh, my tweets. I try to get rid of them when I can, but I was tweeting a lot as I was watching live uh, on uh, YouTube. I was, you know, they have the, uh, the conference, uh, the, the uh, testimony is covered live on YouTube. And so I'm watching it live and I'm, you know, getting very frustrated and I'm kind of tweeting out in real time what's going on. So you should follow me so you, you, can, you can get these tweets and you can also, uh, you know, share them with people and get them out there. But so the first tweet I, I, I made, you know, I'm listening to uh, Maxine Waters, who this is the House. So uh, Powell testified first in front of the House. And so Maxine Waters is the chairperson of the committee, the ranking member uh, so she, uh, of um, 
for the House. So she's not, you know, because the Republicans now have the House, but she's the ranking member for the Democrats. She would be the chair of this committee if the Democrats control the House, which, which they don't. But she's the ranking member, and so she speaks with the authority of the Democrats. But she knows nothing about finance. She knows nothing about economics. She knows nothing about the Fed. Because the first thing she talked about was the fact that she introduced a bill, and I haven't even read this bill, but she introduced a bill in Congress to give the Fed a new mandate, not just price stability, not just you know maximum employment or whatever, but a mandate to solve the problem of inequality, racial inequality. She wants the Fed to fix the problem where white Americans collectively have a higher net worth than African-Americans. You know, whites have more savings, they have more financial assets, and she wants the Fed to do something about that. She wants the Fed to pursue policies that will basically redistribute wealth from whites to blacks. Now, the fact that she could propose something so asinine in and of itself should disqualify her from even being on the committee, let alone like being in charge of the committee. She doesn't understand anything about finance. The Fed can't do anything about distribution of wealth, nor should the government. I mean, the government shouldn't even do it. But in theory, the government would have a way of taxing uh, white people and giving the money to black people, although if they actually targeted it based on race, it would clearly be unconstitutional. But there's nothing the Fed can do. All the Fed can do is raise and lower interest rates. It can create money, it create inflation. But how is that going to benefit African-Americans? In fact, everything the Fed is doing is disproportionately hurting African-Americans because when you create inflation, you have a disparate impact on the poor. And so if African-Americans are overly represented among the poor, then the, they are disproportionately victimized by the policies that the Fed is pursuing. And the ones that uh, Maxine Waters actually uh, supports, you know, she has been in Congress. I quickly looked her up, you know, before I did the podcast. She's been there for 32 years. That's a long time to be in the House. And she's probably going to die a Congresswoman. I mean, she's 84 years old, so she's already pretty old. She turns 85 in, in August. I didn't even realize she was that old. So she you know, looks pretty good for an 85-year-old. So, I mean, she may be there for another 10 or 15 years. Who knows? She might make it to 100 and still be in that congressional seat. I mean, the only way to probably get rid of her is for her to eventually pass away because I don't think there's any way anyone's going to beat her. So she's basically got this seat for life and she's been in government for most of her life because that's 32 years in the House. She served 15 years in the state legislature in California. So she started at like 37, right? And, and she's been, you know, for ever since she's been in elected office. I'm not really sure what she did prior to that. But she doesn't have any real world experience, really. She's just been in government. And she's not the ranking member of that committee. She didn't chair that committee because she's so knowledgeable on finance or the Fed. It's all seniority. It's just because she's been there the longest. And she's there the longest because there's no way to get rid of her. She's got a lock on that seat, which is why I'm in favor of term limits. I don't want somebody like Maxine Waters living in the House of Representatives for 32 years. I want congressmen to actually have to live in the real world 
and obey the laws that they pass, live under the rules and regulations that they enact, right? If they just live there for the whole life, they, they, they're never really subjected to all of the rules and regulations that they subject everyone else to. So we should have a citizen's legislature, particularly in the House, particularly. I mean, that's why when the founding fathers designed the House of Representatives, why did they have to run for re-election every two years? Because the framers wanted a lot of turnover. They didn't want them staying there. They didn't think that they would just win re-election every two years for 32 years. That means Maxine Waters has won 16 consecutive elections. In fact, she probably didn't even have to run. She probably didn't even have an opponent, right? She just, they got rubber stamped because of the way they, they rigged this thing. So we need term limits to prevent stuff like this from happening. But anyway, so that's how it started out with these ridiculous comments from Maxine Waters about her bill. Then one of the first questions, and I'm just going in order of my tweets. So if you're on my Twitter, you can kind of follow along here uh, with me. But one of the first things that uh, he talked about was Silicon Valley Bank. And the congressman, and I forget who, I didn't, you know, who asked the question, but they're trying to blame Silicon Valley Bank on just, you know, rogue bankers that were trying to make a profit. And Powell pretty much agrees. Yeah, you know, this is, this is what it was. It was these, you know, it was just bad management. And completely ignoring the role that both the Fed and Congress played in allowing bad management to do that. I mean, yes, they wanted to maximize profits, but had interest rates not been at zero, they wouldn't have been able to maximize profits the way they did had they not been incentivized to take risks by the, the, the Powell put or the Bernanke put or all the puts that preceded the idea that the Fed would bail them out. Had their depositors not been protected by guaranteed bank accounts, had their depositors been uh, more involved in putting pressure on the banks to mitigate risk, because you know they, they, there was no government guarantees. None of this would happen in a free market. They all want to ignore the impact of government regulations. And in fact, specifically, the way the banks are regulated, if you as a bank make a loan, the government requires you to take a haircut, to mark down the value of that loan on your books. Uh, but if you take that same money and instead of loaning it to the private sector, you just loan it to the government by buying a treasury or you uh, buy a government guaranteed mortgage, the U.S. regulators say, OK, you don't have to mark that down at all. We're just going to assume you can never lose money in that. And so that's the reason that they loaded up on these bonds that lost so much value, because the government said, if you buy those bonds, we're going to allow you to value them at par no matter what they're worth. You never have to take a haircut. You never have to write them down. So the government encouraged them to buy these bonds. And now they're criticizing them from doing exactly what they incentivized them to do. Anyway, I got a quick break. I'm going to come back and I'm going to continue to go over the Q&A uh, from Powell's congressional testimony. Okay, another question that Powell got early on at the, uh, the House testimony. He was asked about the dollar's reserve currency status and somebody asked him, if he thought the U.S. owed its economic dominance to the 
reserve status of the dollar or if the dollar was the reserve currency as a consequence of America's economic dominance. And Powell said it was the latter. And I think he's wrong. I think initially, yes, that was the case. The reason that the dollar became the world's reserve currency was because we dominated the world economically. But not only did we dominate the world economically, the dollar was backed by gold. As I've said many times on this podcast, the dollar was basically a weight of gold. And anybody that held dollars held gold because you could take your dollars to the U.S. government and they would give you gold at a prefixed rate. But today, I would say it's the reverse. The reason that the United States is still the dominant economy is because the dollar is the reserve currency. I think while the dollar status was once a product or a byproduct of America's dominance, that dominance is now completely dependent on that status. Because when the United States got that status, we used it like a crutch. And now we have been dependent on that crutch. It's what enabled us to outsource all of our manufacturing. And as the U.S. economy became less and less competitive due to regulations and taxes and things like that, rather than pushing back against the regulations and taxes, we were just able to run deficits and import the stuff that we couldn't produce because of the dollar's reserve status. So it's like because we relied on that crutch, we became crippled and then needed the crutch because initially we didn't need it, but it was given to us. And so we decided to use it rather than just walk on our own two feet. But now we're so dependent on that crutch because the economy is, you know, our legs have atrophied. You know, we, we, that's, we, we need it and you take it away and everything's going to collapse. And, I, you know, it seems that Powell doesn't really understand that. Now, he got another question about the balance sheet and he was asked, you know, is he concerned about it uh, because it keeps growing? And the congressman who asked him this question actually asked him a good question because he pointed out the inherent problem, which is when the economy is bad, we ramp up the balance sheet very quickly when anything goes wrong. But then when supposedly times are good, the Fed is very slow to shrink the balance sheet. And so that you never withdraw in good times all the liquidity that you put in in bad times. And then when you get the next economic downturn, since you've never drained all the liquidity that you put in during the last downturn, when you add more liquidity, the level keeps going up. And so the size of the balance sheet is going to grow in perpetuity because before the Fed ramped it up to four and a half trillion, then it was able to bring it back down to three and a half trillion, never got back down to one trillion. And then all of a sudden we get in trouble and it's eight trillion or eight, wherever it was, eight, almost nine trillion, actually. And, and so now it's starting to come back down, but we're probably not even going to get below eight trillion before they have to blow it up, you know, to 12 or 15 trillion or whatever. So the point is, are you worried about this? Because it's it keeps on growing. And Powell really didn't think it was a problem. You know, he said, yeah, we're concerned about the the growth of the balance sheet, but that's kind of where it ended. I mean, he never really talked about 
how bad it's going to get or address the underlying question. How is it going to stop growing? Because it, it, and he mentioned, well, we're shrinking it faster now than we did before. Yes, but it's so much bigger now than it was before. And it's still massive. It's still nowhere near the level it was when it stopped growing before. Uh, so he is really, you know, sugarcoating the, the degree of this problem. Now, another point he tried to make, which I disagree with, is he kept talking about our strong labor market and how the U.S. economy is really being driven by this strong labor market. And we don't have a strong labor market. I mean, I don't care that we have a low unemployment rate. I don't care that we're creating a bunch of jobs. That in and of itself doesn't mean we have a strong labor market. You have to look at the quality of the jobs and you got to talk about, you know, real wages. So if the jobs that are being created are by and large low paying jobs, part time jobs, that doesn't really smack of economic strength. The fact that so many people are forced to moonlight, the fact that one job doesn't provide enough income to cover your bills, the fact that so many people have to take second and third jobs, that is not evidence of a strong labor market. In a strong labor market, you just need one job and, and you can earn enough money in that one job to cover your bills. You don't need all these part-time jobs in a strong labor market. Also, real wages have been falling. That's a sign of a weak labor market where workers don't have the bargaining power to get a real wage increase. You know, so everything to me doesn't show that we have a strong labor market. We have a, we have a, a weak economy. And so people have to work a lot harder. The fact that people who are retired, the fact that inflation has so increased the cost of living that they can't afford to re stay retired, that they've got to go back into the workforce and take one of these crappy low paying jobs. That is not a strong labor market powering the economy. It's the weak economy that's forcing more people back into the labor market and it's forcing more people to have second and third jobs. But these are not good jobs. Meanwhile, our trade deficits continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, another point that Powell made, because he was asked about this, and it, it, a lot of times it's to try to you know, provide cover to Biden, because you know, the Republicans want to blame inflation on Biden, and the Democrats want to say, well, look at, look at Europe. Biden's not president of, uh, in the EU, or look at you know, all these other countries. You know, the UK just came out with worse than expected inflation last week. I mean, I think like eight and a half percent. I mean, it, you know, they've got a big problem there in the United Kingdom. And, and so they want to say, yeah, you see, it's not Biden's fault because, you know, how could you blame him for, uh, you know, the, the uh, inflation in, in the United Kingdom? And, and, and so Powell says, yes, you know, looking around the world, it's obvious the one thing that all these countries have in common is COVID. And so because of COVID, that's why we have inflation because of these supply chain bottlenecks. But of course, what Powell conveniently overlooks when he claims the one thing they have in common is COVID. No, what they have in common is the way they responded to COVID by creating inflation. That's what they have in common. They all printed a bunch of money because of COVID. They slashed interest rates because of COVID. They ran bigger budget deficits because of COVID. That's what they have in common. And it didn't start with COVID. All of these countries that are now experiencing elevated inflation, this is not an accident. It's because they all were pursuing inflationary monetary policies by design. Everybody 
the UK, the, the, the Bank of England, or the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the Fed, what they all had in common is what they all said, we don't have enough inflation. Inflation is too low. They were all doing quantitative easing. They all had 0% or negative interest rates. Those are the mistakes that they all made in common. And that's why they're all suffering the same consequence, which is inflation. So inflation was manufactured by government and by central banks, both in the United States and in Europe, because the governments made the same mistakes on both sides of the Atlantic. Anyway, we got another commercial break. Stick around. I got a lot more to talk about uh, from Powell's testimony. All right. Coming back to the congressional testimony of uh, Jerome Powell. So next up, I did write down this congressman's name. It's Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman. And he basically tried to congratulate Powell for bringing inflation back down to 4%. And I don't think it's actually quite that low yet. Um, but he said 4%. I think it's more like 5 but I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of the indexes was 4 And he basically said, look, you know, I think we're done here. I think 4% is pretty good. Uh, and he said that, you know, 4% historically is not high inflation. He said it's lower than the average rate of inflation during the Reagan administration, which is probably true because remember, Ronald Reagan took office in 1981. He was elected in 1980 when inflation was 13% and it was just starting to come down. So to say that, well, you know, we have a lower rate of inflation than we did in the 1980s, you know, when inflation was a huge problem. Uh, and just, you know, just starting to go away is not really saying much. Uh, and 4% is a lot of inflation. I mean, it, even it's double what the Fed claims its target is, right? So if it wants to, four is twice what it claims is, is ideal. But again, what this congressman overlooks is the apples to oranges comparison between the inflation rate today and the inflation rate during the early 1980s when we had a completely different CPI. So if we still measured inflation today using the inflation of CPI of the early 80s, the 4% would be 8%. And 8% doesn't sound so good. I mean, 4% doesn't sound good either. But you know, basically, he's defending 8% inflation and trying to claim that, hey, that's not bad. Well, that is eviscerating the purchasing power of, of middle-class Americans, of lower-class Americans, impoverishing uh, a lot of the people that these congressmen claim uh, to to represent. But the thing that bothers me the most, and it wasn't just the House, it was also, again, at the Senate, but there were congressmen all on the Republican side, right? None on the Democratic side. They are trying to get Powell to comment on the budget deficits. You know, we got the national debt, as I mentioned on my last podcast, above 32 trillion. Uh, you know, we're gonna make it a beeline now for 33 trillion, but the deficits are running out of control and we have massive spending. And the Republicans are trying to get Powell to make the obvious connection between these deficits and inflation. Right. I mean, even Keynesians who really don't even understand economics should ought to know that. Right. That if you have excess fiscal stimulus, right, you have massive deficits, you're going to have inflation. You're 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 you're, you're stimulating demand. You're not stimulating supply. You're just creating more demand for a given supply 
the price has got to go up, especially if the Fed is, you know, printing the money to to monetize those deficits. And and Powell continues to claim that he's not allowed to do that. He's like, well, look, you know, I can't go out of my lane. I'm responsible for monetary policy. I can't talk about fiscal policy. You know, this, it's the same with all my predecessors. I mean, we just don't go there. It's not in our wheelhouse. You know, we, we don't want to overstep our bounds. This is complete BS. I mean, I think that they're trying to flip on its head the idea that the government should allow the Fed to be independent, where Congress shouldn't be beating up on the Fed to you know, print more money or cut rates, right? That the central bank should be independent. It doesn't work the other way around. We're not supposed to have an independent central bank so that it won't criticize the government. No, no, no. Part of the reason to have an independent central bank is precisely so it will criticize the government because they are above politics, right? The central bankers supposedly don't have to get elected so they can do what's in the public interest. And if congressmen who do need to get reelected are sacrificing the public's interest for political expediency, it's the job of an independent central bank to call out the reckless fiscal policy. And that is exactly the job that Powell is refusing to do. A, because he's a coward and, and, and B, he's lying because I went back and I actually tweeted some of this stuff out. When Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed and Powell has spoken fondly of Volcker and how Volcker, you know, did a great job and he, he you know, he, he, he beat down inflation and he restored credibility. It's like, you know, Powell is supposedly or Volcker is one of Powell's heroes. Well, if that's the case, Paul Volcker was a staunch critic of deficit spending, even under Reagan, because there were some big deficits under Reagan. I mean, not, you know, by, you know, today's terms. I mean, you're talking about budget deficits of, I don't know what it was, 100, 150 billion dollars a year. I mean, they're 10 times that size now. But these were big deficits back in, in the 80s. And Volcker was very critical of these deficits. He said, you got to do something. You got to you got to cut government spending or raise taxes. But he was specific and he, he gave speeches to uh, and, and called on Congress to cut defense spending, specifically cut defense, cut entitlements, cut Social Security, cut Medicare. This is what Volcker was telling Congress to do. And he said, you got to do this. Otherwise, we're going to have more inflation. It's going to put upward pressure on long term interest rates. It's going to hurt the economy. You've got to get the fiscal house in order. You've got to cut spending. Now, he was the Fed chairman. He had no problem not only commenting on fiscal policy, but directly criticizing fiscal policy and giving Congress advice as to what he thought they should be doing to correct the mistakes that he was pointing out. And he was trying to fight inflation. And he's pointing out, hey, I'm trying to put out the fire. You guys keep lighting fires. Give me a little help here. Right. That's what Powell is supposed to be doing. If he's supposed to be fighting inflation, he should be lecturing Congress to stop lighting the fires that he claims to be trying to put out. He should be doing exactly what his hero, 
Paul Volcker did and criticizing the government. And it wasn't just Volcker. Um, Alan Greenspan, and I've said a lot of negative things about Alan Greenspan, and Alan Greenspan had the longest term of any Fed chairman. But one of the things that he routinely did was criticize uh, deficit spending. And in fact, I looked at quotes from his very last congressional testimony. At the end of his final term, right, and he's in the exact same chair uh, at, that Powell's in, and his last remarks to Congress where you got to do something about the deficit. We're going to have a explosion, a fiscal time bomb. This is the biggest threat. You got to cut government spending. You got to balance this budget. He was still chairman of the Fed and he's telling Congress what they need to do with fiscal policy, the mistakes that they are making with fiscal policy. So I wish one of these congressmen or senators would ask Chair Powell, Mr. Powell, you claim that you don't have the right to comment on uh, fiscal policy. You know, let alone, you know, he definitely won't criticize it, but he claims he can't even comment on it. He can't even talk about it, like, you know, theoretically, like it's, it's sacrosanct, right? When was there a law passed that, 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 that did this? When were these handcuffs put on the Fed? Because they clearly weren't on um, Volcker. They weren't on Greenspan. Now, I didn't do much research into Yellen or Bernanke. I doubt they were big critics of the uh, fiscal policy of the government. But not because they couldn't. Maybe because they didn't want to. Maybe because they didn't care. But now, when you have a Fed chairman being asked by so many congressional representatives, give us your opinion. We want to know what you think of these deficits. And he says, I can't tell you. I'm not allowed based on what law. Because if Powell was, I mean, if Volcker was allowed, if Greenspan was allowed, and if Congress hasn't passed any uh, legislation that would somehow inhibit uh, the Fed from commenting on fiscal policy, then why can't he do it? The reason is he's copping out. He doesn't want to comment because he doesn't want to put these politicians in the spot and call them out. But that's exactly what he needs to do. And the fact that he won't do it, that is uh, more proof that we don't have an independent central bank. He's trying to claim, oh, the central bank is independent, so we won't criticize Congress. No. <laughs> If the central bank was independent, they would be criticizing Congress. The fact that they're not criticizing it proves that there's no independence. Anyway, um, also, you know, Powell commented too. He tried to say that, look, there is no real link between the big balance sheet, all of QE and, and, and inflation. Because, you know, we were, we were doing QE for a long time and we had really low inflation. Yes, A, because the government lied about it, the way they measured it. But there was a big lag. Yes, there was a long period of time between the creating of the inflation and the effect that inflation had on prices. As I said many, many times, the Fed got lulled into a false sense of complacency in that it created inflation for so long without any uh, seemingly adverse consequences because the official measures of inflation were still below 2%. And so that gave them a false sense of confidence that they could keep on 
creating inflation by printing money and that prices wouldn't go up. Well, now all of a sudden it hit them like a brick and now we're dealing with years and years of inflation chickens that have come home to roost and Powell is still not recognizing uh, the connection there. Now, I'm going to move forward to the Senate um, and the opening remarks and here the Democrats are uh, in charge. So you got the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee is Senator uh, Sherrod Brown. And the first thing he did was he thanked Powell for bringing down inflation. And he said uh, that it is great now that Americans are enjoying falling prices. I'm not making this up. You know, he said falling prices. And prices aren't falling. I don't know what this guy's talking about. I mean, some prices have fallen, right? Gas prices have come down. Um, from um, the highs where they were. But the CPI isn't falling. It's still going up. It's just going up at a slower rate. That's probably what he meant, but that's not what he said. In fact, he wasn't just speaking off the cuff. He was reading, you know, prepared remarks. And so either he wrote them or somebody else wrote them and they were able to think about them. But he said that, um, that, Americans are now benefiting from falling prices. They're not. Prices are still rising. So they're still suffering. The prices that were too high last year are even higher this year because prices continue to go up. Even if they have reduced the rate of increase, they're still increasing at a rate that's too high. And that's just temporary. Now, another thing that um, Powell did was he assured the Senate that the banking system is sound. Uh, it's not sound at all. He said it was sound and resilient. Yes, you know, we ha we're having a problem with the air conditioning in this house. I didn't realize that I'm down here in the basement and it's not on. That's why I keep like brushing the sweat off my brow. I didn't even realize that it was this, this hot down here. We gotta get somebody, you know, some of the ACs are working in the house and some of them just all of a sudden stop. I forgot that it's not working down here. So I'm getting pretty hot. Um, but he, he assured the U.S. Senate that the banking system was sound and resilient. It's anything but. I mean, if it wasn't for the government propping the banks up right now, that we would already had a complete implosion. I mean, we've already had some of the biggest bank failures in history, you know, this year. And if it wasn't for the government coming to the rescue, there would have been more. Now, of course, if it wasn't for... For the government, they wouldn't be so insolvent. You know, there was another, uh, <coughs> actually, I'm going to get to that last because I think that's my last uh, tweet. <coughs> Excuse me, no, I'm still, uh, I'm still dealing with this call. So one of the senators asked Powell about the losses on the Fed's balance sheet because he correctly pointed out, you know, the problem with Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, these other banks, is that the value of their treasuries went down, right? The value of their mortgage-backed securities went down, and so that's why they were insolvent. And he said, what about the Fed? The Fed's got the biggest balance sheet of all, and the Fed has massive losses too on its bonds. And, and so he said, what about that? And Powell basically shrugged it off and said, well, it's just a paper loss. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, it does matter. It matters a lot because it matters to the solvency of the bank because if the Fed actually had to shrink its balance sheet faster 
to fight inflation, it would have to sell those bonds and realize those paper losses. Now, the other point that Powell made uh, that was completely ignored, he pointed out that, you know, when we were running a profit, when we were collecting all this interest on our balance sheet, we were sending that money along uh, to Congress. So, you know, we weren't making a profit. We were sending all the profit to Congress, which is true. But then he stopped the discussion and nobody followed up to point out that now the Fed is sending a bill because here's what's happening to the Fed. They're earning a very low rate on their portfolio because they have a lot of these low yielding bonds that they bought, but they're paying 5%, you know, for their overnight deposits. So the Fed used to make a lot of money because it was paying nothing on the overnight deposits. It was collecting 50, 100, 150, 200 basis points on its massive portfolio of treasuries. And then it was giving that money back to the Congress and it had extra money. So that made the deficits, which were enormous anyway, but it made them less enormous because they got this extra windfall. Well, now the same Fed is paying 5% on its deposits, collecting 50, 100, 150 basis points. It's losing more money now than it used to make. But now instead of sending the U.S. government a check, it sends the U.S. government a bill. That's one of the reasons that the deficits are going to explode, not only because it's costing the government so much more interest on its massive $32 trillion national debt, but because now instead of getting several hundred million dollars a year from the Fed in checks, it's getting several hundred thousand dollars, million, billion dollars a year rather from the Fed in bills. So everything is exploding to the upside, which is why I said on my last podcast that the deficit is going to rise so much in the final year and a half of Biden's term that he is going to beat Donald Trump's record for the most debt in a single term. Uh, and the irony of it is, or whoever gets the next term after um, Biden will probably break that record because this thing is just exploding. It is on autopilot uh, by the very nature of the problem. And the bigger the deficits get, the bigger, the more pressure there is on the deficits to grow. Um, now, there was a big discussion on the effect that deficit spending would have on the economy. And this was with a Republican, again, trying to corner Powell into an admission that deficit spending is the root source of inflation. But Powell didn't want to admit that. But what he did say is he said, well, yes, if you get an increase in government spending, that will stimulate the economy. And, and so that will cause some more demand, which on the margin could lead to slightly more inflation, right? He didn't want to, you know, he kind of reluctantly admitted that. But what Powell got wrong is what every Keynesian gets wrong. He thinks that when the government runs a deficit, it stimulates the economy. It doesn't stimulate the economy, right? Because stimulating the economy would be like a good thing. Like, oh, the economy is more productive, right? No, all government deficit spending stimulates is spending, consumption. It doesn't stimulate the economy. It stimulates consumption, but the economy is production. That's the important part. So all you get when you stimulate consumption through increased government spending is inflation. That's what Powell doesn't understand. The difference between creating inflation and creating economic growth. 
Because when you talk about stimulating the economy, most people would think that, oh, it's stimulating economic growth. No, what stimulates economic growth is repealing regulations, is reducing government spending and reducing taxation to free up resources back into the private sector. That's what stimulates the economy. And also what stimulates the economy are the collective efforts of all the people who work in the private sector, of entrepreneurs coming up with new ideas, starting new businesses. What stimulates the economy is savings, underconsumption, capital investment. Nothing the government does by spending money stimulates anything other than inflation. That's all it does. And just like any other uh, Keynesian, Powell still doesn't, doesn't get that. Um, all right, so I'm going through. Yeah, the, I'm going through my tweets now where I tweeted out all this stuff from Greenspan and Volcker criticizing the Fed because, again, the senators were, were, were trying to get Powell to admit that government spending is, is, is causing inflation and he wouldn't do it. And finally, I want to uh, uh, point out a comment that Senator Warren made at the very end of it, Elizabeth Warren. Um, and she was really just taken Powell the task because of all this deregulation that he supposedly favored. And Warren is blaming all the problems that we have now in the banking system on the fact that Powell wanted to deregulate, that we just took away too much government regulation. And now we have this broken financial system and, and Powell broke it through deregulation. And that's why she didn't uh, uh, approve of his reappointment was because of all this deregulation that he uh, was in favor of that has now wrecked the banking system. Well, the only thing that Elizabeth Warren got right is that the banking system is broken. She's right about that, but she is completely wrong about who broke it. She helped broke it. The government broke it. The Fed broke it, not because it took regulations away, but because it put regulations there in the first place. It didn't take enough regulations away. It's like they can, they can pass like a dozen regulations and then maybe they roll back one or two and then they say, aha, you see, look, you roll back these one or two regulations. That's what caused the problem. No. The problem was caused by the 10 regulations they didn't roll back. They left those in place. It is the government that screwed up the banking industry. It's one of the most highly regulated and subsidized industries in the country. That's why it's one of the most screwed up. The way you get a sound industry that doesn't have all kinds of imbalances, that doesn't have all kinds of excessive risk taking is to leave it alone is to let the free market function. That is the best way, that is the only way uh, to have a sound market because that way people are responsible for the consequences of their own bad decisions. And that is the check that you need to balance everything out. Yes, people are greedy and they wanna make money, but they also don't wanna lose money. That's part of greed too, not wanting to lose money. And what the government does is they come in and they, they pass all these regulations to make people think it's impossible to lose money. They don't care about losing money. And that's what lets the greed run amok because it's no longer checked by the fear. The free market provides both greed and fear. And there's a healthy balance because people are dealing with their own money. See, the problem with politicians is none of it is their own money. It's all somebody else's money. So they don't give a damn. Right? They just care about their own reelection. 
They don't care about the real economic consequences. So what we need is to get rid of government. We need to get the government out of banking and so we can get the free market back in. I want to finish up today's podcast though by giving everybody the latest update on my ongoing saga with my litigation <coughs> down in Australia. <coughs> so I, be, I just got between my last podcast and this one, I, I, I won again the last hearing. And so I mentioned on this podcast that a Channel 9's latest strategy is to claim that my reputation was so bad before they defamed me that I shouldn't really be entitled to any damages because, you know, how do you damage your reputation that's already rotten, right? I mean, basically that was their claim. But their evidence of my rotten reputation was my conservative libertarian uh, political philosophy, right? That, I mean, which they equated to criminality because I believed in individual liberty, because I didn't believe the government should force everybody to surrender their liberties in order to catch every tax cheat, right? That made me, you know, the equivalent of a criminal, right? So they, they wanted to introduce all this ridiculous evidence, which wasn't going to prove anything other than the fact that I was a free market libertarian conservative. I mean, I've never once gone out and advocated uh, that people break the law. I've, I've, I've discussed my disagreement with the law, my, um, my reasons that I'd like to see the laws changed, but I've never once told people to break the law and I've never broken the laws myself. In fact, I pointed this out because I am such a critic of so many government rules and regulations. I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to violate the laws that I'm publicly criticizing. No, no, no. If I'm going to go out on a limb and criticize the government, I mean, I've done the same thing my entire career. I'm in the investment industry. Right? I'm regulated by FINRA that used to be uh, National Association of Security Dealers, but they, you know, a long time ago, they, they became FINRA and I'm regulated by the SEC. I am highly critical of both. I publicly advocated that uh, they should be abolished. I went to Congress and testified that, I, that I, I thought that we should get rid of these agencies. So I'm very critical of the agencies that regulate me now. Do you think I'm going to not follow their rules? I know that when they audit me, they're going to be extra careful. Oh, this is this Peter Schiff guy. He, he says all kinds of bad things about us. We better really look at him with a fine tooth comb. I know that they're going to put me through the ringer. So I have to do everything by the book, right? Because I put a target on myself, right? And so that was the same thing with banking. Yes, I was highly critical of a lot of the banking rules and regulations because I have to deal with them. I know how intrusive they are. I know how they force everybody to surrender their rights. You know, I know how much they unnecessarily run up the cost of doing business. I hate these rules and regulations. That's one of the things I don't like about the businesses that I'm in. Financial services, I hate the regulations, but I abide by them anyway because I, 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 that's what I'm doing, right? And, and, and so I, I like to criticize this stuff because I think you know, it's important to criticize government. That's, that's why we have freedom of speech, to criticize government. If we can't criticize government, what good is freedom of speech, right? So I'm out there, I'm criticizing government. I'm hoping to change the laws that I'm criticizing, but I am making sure 
to abide by them. And, and so I did the same thing with banking. And so all they would have done is they wanted to play, you know, all of my podcasts or hours and hours of podcasts and introduce all kinds of irrelevant information to try to say that, you know, I'm a bad guy because of my political beliefs. And the judge basically threw all that out and said, no, that's irrelevant. You can't do this. I'm not going to let you turn this, you know, into a, into a circus and run up the cost. It's going to take God knows how long. You see, all, you know, Channel 9 wants to do is delay the ultimate uh, verdict, you know, the, the, the award, and they want to run up my legal bills, right? I mean, that's been their goal the entire time. Drag it out, run up my cost, you know, spend me into oblivion. Uh, well, I mean, fortunately, they can't do that. Right? I've, I've got the resources that I can fight this gigantic corporation, this publicly traded company. But, you know, this works on a lot of people, right? They spend them into submission because they don't have the resources that I have uh, to stand up for myself. And, and so I won this, this hearing. And just like all the other hearings I win, you know, I end up getting my costs uh, back. I haven't actually collected on any of these awards. I've got a stack of uh, cost awards because every time I have to fight one of their BS judgments, the judge at least has the sense to say, you know, you wasted Mr. Schiff's time. You wasted his money. So you've got to pay all of his costs for wasting everybody's time. But they don't care. They just keep on uh, wasting it. But what they did get the judge to allow is the judge said, you know what? We're going to let you introduce. There was like 38 things they wanted to introduce. And the judge said, okay, you know, you can't introduce these 38 things, but there's six of them you can introduce. Two of them we didn't object to, which two of them were crazy. They tried to claim, and I'm not making this up, but, you know, Channel 9 tried to claim that they shouldn't have to pay me or what they pay me should be reduced because I already went out on my podcast and told everybody that I won my lawsuit, right? That I, that I won the defamation lawsuit. I tweeted it out and therefore they don't owe me money because look, I've already, I've already mitigated the damages. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, it's been two years and nine months since they defamed me. But so just because I, I told my followers, you know, oh, hey, I won my lawsuit, that that takes them off the hook. I mean, I can't even believe that they're arguing that. But okay, if they wanna make that BS argument, it doesn't matter, you know, and I'm one of the only people out there that that's claiming this, you know, I, I tweet about it and, and there are people sometimes that respond on my Twitter. Hey, Peter, why are you doing this? Why are you crying about this? I'm not crying about it. I want people to know about it. Nobody is telling this story. You know, when 60 Minutes ran their program and falsely accused me of using my bank to launder money and evade taxes and I was banking all these notorious organized criminals when all this stuff was made up. But when they reported it, there were so many newspapers and, and, and websites that reported on that story, right? And repeated those lies, including the New York Times, which ran a big story the day after the 60 Minutes broadcast, all about how the 60 Minutes broadcast was accusing me of this. And of course, the same newspapers wrote about Operation Atlantis, which was investigating my bank. Hey, the US government, these five countries, they're all investigating Euro-Pacific Bank because they believe that this bank is running this massive tax evasion, uh, money laundering scam, right? 
Well, none of the newspapers that reported on that investigation, including the New York Times, will report that the investigation found nothing, that all these governments were wrong, that my bank wasn't doing any of the things that they thought it was doing. And in fact, not only did they find no evidence that the bank helped anybody launder money or evade taxes, but they found lots of evidence that the bank did everything it could to prevent customers from laundering money or evading taxes. And the other significant thing is they didn't even find any evidence. They, they looked over thousands of accounts. They couldn't even find a single account where it looked suspicious that maybe they were uh, using their account for an illicit purpose because we did such a good job in compliance. None of these newspapers, including the New York Times, will report that. So they all reported the leak. The U.S. government illegally leaks that they're investigating me and my bank. That gets reported. None of the newspapers that reported that have the guts to say, oh, you remember that, that investigation that we reported? It turned out that they were completely innocent, right? And of course, they don't want to acknowledge that the bank was destroyed because they leaked it. You know, there was no public, um, uh, compelling pub public interest. If those reporters, if the New York Times reporter, right, Matt Goodson is his name, if he had any integrity, right? If you get leaked information illegally by a corrupt politician, because that's the only way these reporters got the information. They knew all these details because it was leaked by the government illegally. Grand jury investigation is confidential. What happened was illegal. So you're a newspaper and you are in possession of stuff that was illegally leaked, an investigation. If you have any integrity, you just keep quiet and you wait for the investigation to produce an indictment and then you report on it. You don't report on the indict on the investigation before anyone is charged. The whole purpose of having a confidential indictment is to protect the innocence of the, the accused. You don't want to taint somebody unfairly. You don't want to say, hey, Peter Schiff is under investigation for money laundering and tax evasion because what if I'm innocent? The fact that I'm being investigated is going to make people think I might be guilty. So if you have any integrity, you just sit on that information. Now, if it was really important that the public know, but why should the public need to know? There's nothing there. What if they're innocent? So you just wait, right? And then if there's an indictment, well, then you can report on that. But if there's just suspicion, but no evidence has been found and you're in possession of an illegal leak, you, you keep quiet. But you know, the media, they don't give a damn. And so basically, even though my bank was exonerated, right, it was basically, there was no evidence to even charge the bank. The bank uh, was convicted and executed because the bank doesn't exist anymore, right? The, the media put the bank out of business by reporting uh, the leak. Uh, and of course, the government, I hold more to blame because they, they leaked it, but then you have the reporters and of course, the worst offender being 60 Minutes in Australia, which not only reported of the leak, but proclaimed me guilty. That's where, you know, my guilt uh, was determined. And the death sentence carried out for the bank was a direct result of 60 Minutes claiming that I was guilty of crimes that they ended up having no evidence that I committed, which is why they dropped the investigation. But anyway, what I was, the point I was trying to make as to what uh, Channel 9 is allowed to introduce now is they're allowed to try to claim that their damages are mitigated because they claimed that we had no compliance. They actually claimed that
that people could open a bank account at my bank in one minute. That's all it took was a minute and no paperwork was required. They claimed that we marketed the bank as a way to evade taxes or hide your money. And we marketed the fact that it only took a minute to open up an account. And so, you know, and that I didn't care. Like I was totally indifferent to criminals having accounts that I, that I, that I wanted criminals at my bank. So they're allowed to put evidence in of that. The problem is they don't have any evidence of that because none of that is true. I can actually prove that all of it is false. It took one to three weeks to get an account. So one week was about a minimum, not one minute, one week. Everybody who opened up an account, not only did they have to submit all sorts of documents. Now they didn't have to submit the original. They could have submitted in electronic form, right? So they didn't have to put a piece of paper in the mail. They could scan it and upload it, right? So we made that simpler, but they had to have it um, notarized, right? Certified. They had multiple documents they had to send us. Every single applicant for a bank account also had to go through a personal interview with a real live person, not a machine, an interview, right? Via Skype or Zoom, whatever. But there was an interview with a complaint. The process was very arduous. It took a long time. That's why so many people didn't complete it. That's why 75% of the people who applied never got an account because the process was so difficult. So to say that, oh, we allow people to open up an account in one minute without any documents, that's what these guys actually told the judge that I did. Now we couldn't object to that because it wasn't about the facts. They're just saying evidence that they want to submit. They don't even have any evidence of that because it didn't happen. They're also saying the bank was was marketed to you know lower taxes, that never happened. There was never anything on the bank about lowering your taxes, about avoiding taxes. We never uh, marketed that we had little or no compliance. All that is not true. And of course, I did my best. The bank did its best. We didn't want any criminals. I mean, if you look at my bank's website, um, there was about a dozen different prohibited accounts that we had. We didn't take any cannabis. We didn't take any gambling. We didn't take any sex. Uh, we didn't take crypto. Um, we didn't take charities. We didn't take accounts from politicians, uh, anybody that was uh, uh, politically connected. I mean, there was, there was a whole list of prohibitive types of accounts. Why did we prohibit those accounts? Because we thought there was a higher likelihood that people in those industries might be dealing with tax evasion or money laundering. Not everybody in those industries, obviously, but we thought there was a higher probability. And so in order to reduce the chances of a criminal slipping through the cracks, we turned down the accounts of lots of people who probably weren't criminals. That's how anal we were about not allowing people to use our bank accounts for uh, tax evasion and money laundering. Why? Because we wanted to grow the bank. We wanted to be a much bigger bank and we were dependent on relationships with other larger banks who wouldn't have worked with us unless they were confident that we were screening out all the potential uh, criminals or money launderers or drug dealers, whatever, tax evaders, because they were responsible ultimately for our compliance. And so we had to be extra squeaky clean because I had you know, big ambitions for this bank. And so I invested millions and millions of dollars 
in compliance. Half of the bank's staff worked in compliance. At, at my peak, I had 80 employees, about 40 of them were in compliance. And here you've got 60 Minutes Australia claiming we had no compliance, that people could open up an account in one minute, no questions asked, no paperwork. They don't have a shred of evidence to prove that. They have no qualms about lying to the judge, repeatedly lying about a case that they don't have because they refuse to admit that they got it wrong. I mean, that is the worst part about this. I mean, if they honestly made a mistake, which at this point, I don't believe, there's nothing honest about these guys. But if they had any integrity, which they don't, they would admit that they got it wrong. Oh, we falsely accused this guy. Oh, we're sorry. Oh, his, you know, he lost his bank. Oh, we're a huge public company. Let's make this guy whole, right? Let's, let, let's pay him for the damages that we caused. No, we never said he did anything wrong. Oh, okay, we can prove he did all that stuff wrong. Oh, no, we can't prove he did anything wrong, but he's a really bad guy, so it's okay that we defamed him. And now they just make up all these lies. But anyway, the last stage that is left is the actual uh, trial for my damages. And I'm not really sure when that's going to be, but I'm going to ask, I know I'm going to need witnesses in Australia. And, and so I know I have people that listen to my podcast in Australia. So you might want to drop me a note at Shift Radio, maybe send Paul at Shift Radio, but I might need two types of witnesses who could testify. Uh, one might be clients of the bank who live in Australia, might be willing to testify just about how hard our compliance was, how many hoops we made you jump through, not only to open up an account, but any, every time you wanted to send a wire, every time you got a wire, all the questions. I mean, all you have to do is go to Trustpilot. Look at the negative reviews, the one-star reviews. They're all about how, how, how tough our compliance was. People were pissed that we made them do so much stuff, right? They would get pissed at us. It wasn't us. We didn't want to do all that. We were just doing what the law required us to do. But so if you're in Australia, you could potentially testify about, you know, how strict my compliance was. The other thing would be if you live in Australia, the, the, the hearing is going to be in Sydney. Right. So, you know, would be to testify as to my reputation that prior to the 60 minutes, the reputation I had was of a honest man, somebody of high integrity, somebody who obeyed the law. I was known for my economics, uh, for uh, finance, that I was mainly critical of the Fed, monetary policy. Right. I mean, 60 minutes is trying to paint me as a tax protester. They're trying to say that I was mainly known for my objection to the income tax. No, that's my father, right? They're confusing me with my father. They're trying to hold me responsible for the sins of my father. Maybe they don't realize that you're not supposed to do that, but they're trying to reinvent Peter Schiff as Irwin Schiff. I'm not Irwin Schiff, I'm my own person. Uh, and I'm not known as a tax protester. I mean, do, do I like to minimize taxes? Yes, but that's not what I'm known for. They're trying to recreate my image as this, you know, tax protester. Uh, and, you know, that's really not what I'm known for. But the whole point is that I had a good reputation in Australia for being honest, uh, for being authentic, for having integrity. And I was known as a asset manager, as a money manager, for having accurately predicted the, the 2008 financial crisis, for having been the economic advisor to the Ron Paul presidential campaign, a number of things that define me. I was not defined by the fact that I thought the income tax was unconstitutional. 
right? Or I was not defined by my opposition to the Patriot Act. Those were small things uh, that were part of a much bigger reputation that 60 Minutes destroyed by labeling me a crook, by telling me that I was dealing with organized criminals like the mafia, right? I, I was the banker to the mob. I didn't care about dealing with the lowest of the low. I was that greedy, right? I was just trying to make money and I didn't care if I was helping drug traffickers or arms dealers or who the hell knows the low life characters that they were implying I was dealing with. So if you if you like to testify as to by good character and you live in, in, in Australia, because obviously I don't want to have to fly everybody down there. I mean, I might have some other witnesses that I got to fly down to Australia. It's not exactly an inexpensive flight. It takes a long time to get there. And then you got hotels and everything. So if I have some witnesses that already live there, uh, that would that would be helpful. Anyway, uh, I'm looking at the clock. I've been talking for a long time. So bye for now. The next time I do a podcast, it's going to be uh, from Europe. So take care and uh, stick around. And I got more coming over the summer with the Peter Schiff Show podcasts.